You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Tom Parker, who has spent the past three years as a European Union-sponsored advisor to the Office of the National Security Advisor in Baghdad, Iraq, prior to which he served as a counterterrorism strategist at the United Nations Counterterrorism Center and as the advisor on human rights and counterterrorism to the United Nations Counterterrorism Implementation Task Force, say that five times fast, where he co-authored the Secretary General's Plan of Action to Prevent Violent Extremism. Over the past decade, Tom has worked extensively as a consultant on post-conflict justice, security sector reform, and counterterrorism projects around the world, including assignments in Chad, Colombia, Georgia, Guatemala, Kyrgyzstan, Lebanon, Mexico, Nepal, Peru, Rwanda, Sri Lanka, Tajikistan, Thailand, Uganda, and Ukraine. He has also served in the policy director for terrorism, counterterrorism, and human rights for Amnesty International USA, as a special advisor for, on transnational justice to the Coalition Provisional Authority, as a war crimes investigator for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in both Bosnia and Kosovo. And unless you want to think that he is a touchy-feely human rights guy, before that as an intelligence officer in the British Security Service, MI5. He has taught courses on international terrorism and adjunct professor at Bard College, the National Defense University at Fort Bragg, Yale, and John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and is the author of Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, Why Respect for Human Rights is the Key to Defeating Terrorism. So welcome, Tom. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Well, thank you for taking the time to go through that bio. Right, That's you crazy. thought you were just going to sit here for an hour while I read your bio off. So I mean, your background is, I, I went through it on purpose because I want the, the, reader, the listener to understand that you've been around the block a couple of times. You've got the frequent flyer miles to show it. <laughs> and you wrote a book that, you know, when I first got it, I started laughing because it is massive. Um, but it, and, and you look at some of these and you're like, man, a lot of times you read these and say, this guy really needs an editor, but there's, there's not a lot of fluff in here. This is straight up hardcore information. And with your bio, former MI5, you've done a lot around the world in some pretty nasty places. Your book talks about human rights. 
right, which is coming from left field for a lot of people we had here talking about terrorism. Usually it's, you know, finding their hearts and minds and then putting a bullet in their heart and their mind, right? I mean, that's that's usually the fundamental premise of counterterrorism operations. Mm -hmm. So what brought you to be the touchy-feely human rights guy on terrorism? Well, you know, I'm still not the touchy-feely human rights guy on terrorism. That That's not how I come at this. Um, for me, it's the voice of experience rather than a political perspective or, um, you know, a legalistic viewpoint. Um, you know, I joined the security service because I was blown up by the IRA when I was 21. Um, so I got into this business because I saw my friends hurt and I wanted to do something. Now, we're talking now the not 1990, 1991. This is a long time ago. Um, but I got into the business because I wanted to stop that sort of thing from happening. Um, I was very proud of my, my, my service in the security service. Um, I felt we did good work. I, to this day, remain uh, very friendly and, and very proud of the people that I served with um, and very proud of the service that, that I did for my country. So, you know, I don't come at this from a human rights perspective as such. What I've learned is that we're often our own worst enemies when we fight terrorism. You know, and that was very much the British experience in Northern Ireland, which was how I got into this. My first understanding was working on a, uh, a team that was working on the Bishopsgate bombing. Uh, one of the large truck bombs that went off in central London in the, uh, the mid-1990s. Um, so that was my first introduction. I remember doing the uh, Northern Irish background briefing course that we do in the service. They send you off for a week to learn about Irish history because we don't teach that in English schools. Yeah. That may come as a shock, but uh, it's not something we learn in schools. You know, Cromwell is, Cromwell's a hero if, you, if you're a Brit, right? He's not a hero if you come from Ireland. Um, and I remember coming out of it at the end of the week thinking, my God, no wonder these people hate us. Yeah, no, I mean, that's one of the things that, I mean, again, from, I have an Irish background, and certainly you learn that side of the perspective, certainly in the United States, you know, from Massachusetts and other places, yeah. you know, and, and trying to even teach Americans about World War I history. And it's, we're kind of so in tune to thinking the British were always our buddies. Mm -hmm. But in World War I, there were 8 million Irish immigrants in the United States that wanted to join the war on the side of the Germans. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a perspective that we just don't always think about. Right, and the Germans landed arms in, in, in Ireland during World War I. The Easter Uprising was, you know, the, there's a, an old Irish saw that uh, England's danger is Ireland's opportunity. Um, so every time that, that the UK is on the back foot, um, there tended to be trouble in Ireland. Uh, during the Second World War, the IRA was in contact with the Abwehr. And I think I'm right in saying that an IRA chief of staff actually died on a German U-boat uh, on his way back from a meeting in Germany. So, you know, I mean, that, that's always been the case. But, of course, if you're an Irish nationalist and you want a free island, of course you're going to ally with the people that right. are fighting the people who occupy your country, you know, from your perspective. It's much more complicated than that for everybody, obviously. I mean, we've all got Irish blood in us. If you live in the British Isles, we've all got English blood in us. Um, but, you know, I mean, th th there's no question that the English, and it is specifically, I think, the English, or at least the English ruling class, you know, tried to crush Gaelic culture. They tried to crush Irish culture. And a large part of, uh, you know, you've got the religious dimension as well, obviously, between Catholics and Protestants. But it's more about identity, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the, the British record in Ireland is not one to be particularly proud of. Well, let me, let me ask you about a premise that you lay out in the very beginning of this book, because a conventional wisdom about terrorism, and you ask people, I've seen very experts, I'm putting air mm -hmm. quotes around that, giving talks, going back to, like, talking about Judas Iscariot and the Zealot being a, you know, the Zealots against the Romans being terrorists or using history going back hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And you, you say, no, just stop. Because when we talk about modern terrorism, which is really the only words mm -hmm. we really want to talk about in this case, you say it really only goes back to the mid-19th century. And, and as a, an intelligence historian, but also as a historian of science mm -hmm. and technology, immediately I saw what you're getting at, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, these are the fundamental... I had a 
question that basically asks this exact thing on my, my PhD comprehensive exams. <laughs> and why was the mid 19th century so key for modern society? Yeah. And you kind of lay this out as far as it's important for terrorism as well. Communications revolution, transportation revolution, the military arms revolution, and these ideas that literacy spread, so ideas spread with them. Yeah. And those things fundamentally come together to be the foundation for what we see as terrorism today. Yeah, and the experience of the American Civil War. Um, you know, the Confederates develop uh, uh, this, this concept of almost land privateers, which is basically you know, you might irregular warfare. Um, they have a secret service, but they, they actually develop what they call the horological torpedo, a, a time bomb, effectively. Mm -hmm. And they almost kill Grant with it. Mm -hmm. And they actually get it very close to, to, to where he's staying. A, a blast goes off in an ammunition barge. It kills 50 Union soldiers. Um, the, the Confederacy obviously gave birth to a certain extent to the Ku Klux Klan. You could argue that the Klan is one of the very first modern-style terrorist organizations. Uh, I do in the book. Um, it's not a large part of the book, but it is, it's one aspect. I, I think that's one of the this sort of um, yeah, nationalist or, or exclusivist, I, I think I use the phrase exclusivist in the book, the sort of strain to terrorism that's been around from the beginning, along with a religious strain to terrorism. You could argue John Brown right. uh, is sort of an early religious terrorist. Um, and then you also have a sort of a nationalist strain, uh, Phyllis Ilsini uh, threw a bomb at Napoleon III. This is a, one of the very first sort of modern terrorist attacks. He uses a, uh, what's called a Fellini bomb. Uh, he, he develops it himself, uh, or Cini bomb, sorry, and he develops it himself. It's a contact grenade. Uh, bounces off Napoleon's carriage, actually kills a bunch of people in the crowd, including and actually wounds Orsini, which is how they catch him. Um, now, he's an Italian kill, trying to kill a French emperor because he feels he's standing in the way of Italian unification. Um, and then you have the anarchists. You have the sort of the early socialists. Uh, there's a chap called Karl Heinzen who writes, uh, writes a, he's a contemporary of Marx and Engels, and he writes a, 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 a sort of a manifesto, you might call it, called uh, Death and Freedom. And that's where we get the term freedom fighter from. He coins it. I mean, um, a lot of this is kind of these, these new ideas of the 19th century where it's not just a proletariat. I mean, that, obviously mm -hmm. that's what you look from the Marxist lens. But it's the idea that the social elites aren't the only ones that are reading. The social elites... It's not just John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau anymore. Mm -hmm. It's everyone, even at the lowest levels, have the ability to have conversations and debates and get involved in politics. Right. Terrorism is political. That's exactly it. So if you don't have the younger younger people, if you don't have the lower classes involved in politics, you're not going to have terrorism. Those yeah. are the ones actually carrying this stuff out. And that's exactly it. And this happens at exactly the same time that you get the revolver um, right. you know, and, and the Remington. Um, and dynamite, you know, so instead of having to have 40 guys lay down musket fire to have a chance of hitting one guy, you can now walk up to somebody and go bang, 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 bang. You know, that, that's a game changer. You're putting the, the, the power of an infantry company in the hands of one man uh, or two or three men. And that, that is happening at exactly the same time that politics is saying to ordinary people, you matter. Your opinion counts. You can make a difference. You know, and that, that's, that's the game changer. What does this have to do with the contagion effect? Because I think that, that kind of fundamentally that seems to be, you know, if I had to narrow this this eight, 900 page book down into maybe 20 ideas, mm -hmm. that certainly pops out as one of them mm -hmm. in my mind. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So it's not a, my original idea. Right. I mean, it's been around in, in, in a number of different uh, social sciences, uh, anthropology, sociology. Uh, political science, communication studies, they've got variants on this, and, and a number of people in the terrorism field have used it before. Uh, Martha Crenshaw is probably the first, I think, to use it. Peter Wildham's another. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. Um, uh, Mia Bloom calls the, talks about a demonstration effect. Now, she's talking about um, actual uh, means of attack. She's actually talking about passing on technology. 
um, and tech transfer between different terrorist groups. And in, in her specific case, I think, is a Hezbollah transfer to Hamas of um, suicide bus, uh, the technology to, to, to walk suicide bombs onto buses. Um, you know, that, that, that idea, I think, you know, it's, it's nothing succeeds like success. Right. And again, going back to the 1850s, this is just at the time that you start to get newspaper circulation spiking the telegraph. Ideas are going around the world. Um, you know, when um, uh, in Barcelona, the, um, uh, the Opera House in Barcelona was bombed by an anarchist, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, um, the New York Times, uh, no, the New York Herald, I think, a New York newspaper right. sold more copies for that one issue than they had for any previous uh, print runs. You know, and that's news from halfway across the world about a conflict that doesn't really impact any Americans. Um, yes, there's a Spanish immigrant population, but it's pretty small. It's not like it's the German population or the English population. And that's not who they're writing it for anyway. And that's not who they're writing it for. And yet it's an event of such magnitude that people are paying attention. And this is closely allied to the concept of propaganda by deed, which was sort of hardwired into anarchist thinking. Mm -hmm. The idea that you spread your message through the type of means, you know, the medium is the message. You carry out an attack against kings or, or against the royal court, and you're saying something pretty profound about how you feel about kings. Um, you know, it's this is something you see all the way through the modern day and right. the way that terrorists choose targets, right? There's a reason why Osama bin Laden chose the Twin Towers and the Pentagon as targets and possibly or probably the Senate, right? He's trying to make a commentary about the weakness of American power, uh, financial power, military power, and political power. Um, and that's been hardwired into terrorism from the beginning. Well, let me ask you about kind of something you already mentioned, mm -hmm. but I want to get the idea that we're all, we are our own worst enemies. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the central theme of the book, if I had to yep. put it as number one, is the idea that success in terrorism depends almost exclusively on the reaction of the target to that terrorist attack. Yeah, It's uh, our decision to be afraid. It's our decision to overreact. It's our decision how we're going to deal with this in our, meaning governments mm -hmm. and people and everything else. And without that, terrorists have no power whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, the metaphor I love for this, and it, it's often misunderstood, is the war of the flea, right? Terrorism is often called the war of the weak. Um, and there's a famous book about guerrilla warfare called The, uh, the War of the Flea uh, by Robert Tabor. Um, the metaphor, though, is often misunderstood. It's not about the flea bites. Right? The War of the Flea is about the dog scratching the flea bites. It's about the wounds getting infected, the dog actually hurting itself. That's the concept, and that concept has been baked in from ter in, into terrorism from the moment that people actually sat down and started thinking about how they were using this new strategic tool. Um, the idea has always been, you know, for terrorists, they are always a small splinter minority group, right? Right. So they, they don't have the option of, you know, if you, the concept that Mao had of people's war, right, was to build to you know, an actual army in the field, right? The terrorism, which is part of that process for Mao, um, is the starting point. It's, it's, it's where you start with a small group of men. It's Castro in the Sierra Mestre with, with 20 other guys. Um, and if that's what your force is, then what you have is a contingent tactic. Right, it's all about what the other person does. And this is nothing, this should not come as a shock to anybody who's ever been involved in military operations. You try and make the enemy do what you want him to do. Wait, right? And, and trip them and just push and yeah. just chip away, I mean, especially if you're, I mean, and that's where you kind of yeah. run into the fine line between an insurgency and a terrorist organization, right? Or the idea of, are the Viet Cong in the insurgency yeah. or are they a terrorist organization? And where do you get that point? And, and, and mm -hmm. obviously there's political scientists out there that have talked about where that, that yeah, point yeah. is between the two, but it's very difficult to kind of to yeah. find that line. I, I would argue it's a somewhat artificial line of demarcation totally between agree. the two, yeah. and you know, it's the idea of what you want to call yourself 
because the word terrorist, and you mentioned this in the book, the word mm-hmm. terrorist has such a negative connotation to, to it that you'd rather be known as the freedom fighter or sure. what have you. Although, you know, Bin Laden famously said, we are the good type We're of terrorist. We're the good types right? of terrorist. Well, yeah. you know, uh, but no, you're absolutely right. And people don't typically like that label. Um, the label, again, it's, it's very loaded. Um, when I worked at Amnesty International, we didn't use the term terrorism, we used the term armed group for that reason, to try and you know, preserve that neutrality. Um, you know, the United Nations, you know, terrorism is a really difficult word as well. You know, there's very free, few groups that the United Nations will, in an official document, describe as a terrorist organization, you know, because there are always political equities there. People who support different, particularly national liberation movements at the political level, there are states that support them, and it becomes very, very contentious. Um, but for the terrorists themselves, and I totally agree, it's really a question of degree. Um, Paul Wilkinson had quite a nice uh, sort of um, progressive rubric that he used for applying these different terms, and you know, from, from terrorism to guerrilla warfare to insurgency to civil war. Um, but where you draw that line, I think ultimately, yes, it's absolutely arbitrary. I think by the point you get to insurgency, you're in real trouble. Mm-hmm. But at terrorism, the power's on your side if you're the government. You have by far and away tremendous resources in comparison to a terrorist organization. If you use them smartly, right. right, you can do a lot. If you use them stupidly, you're going to fall into the terrorist trap, and that's, that's, that's the theme of the book. Um, you know, and I, I really didn't start thinking about this until I was in Iraq in, in 2003. You know, again, true believer me, patriot, I got asked by the British government to go and serve in the, uh, the Coalition Provisional Authority. Um, I got a phone call from Whitehall, and I was on a plane two days later to the pre-deployment center. Um, that's for that particular deployment, I was going there to help set up the Saddam Tribunal. And so I was somebody who had a rare background. I'd served on the Iraq desk in the security service. So I had a background on Iraq, and I'd just spent four years at the, the War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. So I was a kind of a natural fit, and Whitehall's really small. So right. people knew me, uh, and so I got a phone call. Um, and you know, when I got down there, and you can obviously take a political position on whether the war was right or wrong and how we got involved and whether we should have been there. But let's part that to one side. Most of the people that I met in Iraq were sincerely trying to do a good job. They were trying to put the country back together again. They were trying to help the Iraqi people. I mean, there was a genuine sense when I got there that the, you know, the Bush administration's idea of trying to create a democracy was sincere. In fact, one of the things I often joke about is, you know, I'm Anglo-American. I, you know, I've got a very British accent, but you know, I've lived here for 20 years. My dad's American. Um, you know, my son's American. Um, so, you know, I often, I often sort of thought this was really funny because the Brits have a colonial gene. You know, our instinct when we got in there was everybody stand aside, we'll figure out what, you know, what we're going to do, then we'll tell you. Whereas the Americans wanted to have focus groups. They wanted to sit down. We'd get the, the lawyers' union in. We'd get leading members of the community. And that's not the British approach. The British approach was let's figure out what needs to be done here because, you know, honestly, we probably know best. Uh, and then we'll roll it out. Um, and I was really impressed by the American approach as I found myself going to meeting after meeting with, with Iraqis and the Americans listened. And well, I the problem, that, though, is if you get rid of all the Baathists that actually know what the hell they're doing, it's very hard to have focus groups of people well, that have... The thing is, that, well, anyway, I'm sorry. a <laughs> bunch of problems, right? Yes. I mean, this is the other thing about the book. It, 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 this is such a... Con- there's this great quote from Churchill, which I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I can't remember it exactly, but basically he says everything's moving in every direction at once. Um, and that's the reality of almost any political event that you want to look at. You know, there's never one cause, it's never monocausal, there's always many, many things going on. And you're absolutely right about the, 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 the dis- dismantling the military and, uh, you know, I mean, that wasn't just the military, I mean, you're losing school teachers, right. and you're losing civil servants, all of that. Um, you know, and it was pushed by, you know, it was an agenda pushed by people who wanted to take their jobs, you know, to a, to a large extent. Um, but, you know, the average guy on the street, uh, the average guy in the CPA, 
definitely wanted to help um, or was there to help. Um, you know, some people might have had careers that they were hoping to advance as well, but most people, you know, everybody I worked with was committed to the cause, was trying to help, was trying to fix things. Um, you know, I worked with a bunch of different ministries there, and that was what I encountered everywhere I went. And at the same time, on the street, I saw on an almost daily basis us alienate the Iraqis more and more and more and more and more. And, you know, I got there, when I first got there, no one picked me up at the airport, and I got in the back, as I just worked in Bosnia, I was used to working in foreign environments, I literally got a ride into town in the back of an Iraqi pickup truck. Somebody gave me a lift. And um, that would have been suicidal three months later. Yeah. Um, uh, but it tells you how quickly things went south. Three months later, we were getting mortared every second day. Um, and I remember quite early on, there was the decision to try and hit back, to try and you know, demonstrate force. And it was called, if I'm remembering correctly, Operation Iron Hammer. And the idea was to bring in a Spectre gunship. It would fly in over in the darkness outside Baghdad. And when the mortars were fired, it would zip in, hit the firing point, And that would demonstrate to the Iraqis, don't mess with us. So everybody goes up on the roof to watch this. You know, it's very exciting. Never seen something like this before. It's like a World War II movie. The C-130 lumbers right. in over Baghdad. It's very disappointingly quick. You know, it's brup, 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 it's all over. Um, and everybody's high-fiving, and this is fantastic. And I go into the work the next day, and everybody feels they've really just demonstrated a point. And I said to one of our Iraqi interpreters, what did, what did you think of this thing last night? I said, the Americans just showed they're too scared to go in on the ground. And that was the Iraqi takeaway. And you suddenly think, my God, we're speaking two different languages right. here. Uh, and that was where, you know, I mean, I, I was there for, I was in there for seven months because once the death penalty was on the table for Saddam, that was it for the British government. That was a red line for us, and I was withdrawn. Um, but the, the, that stuck with me, and I, I was really lucky. I'd been offered a, a six-month fellowship at Yale when I came back, and so I had six months to think about it. Right. Um, and something that, to be honest, when I was an officer, <laughs> I didn't do much of. Um, but, you know, sitting in, in New Haven, Connecticut, with time on my hands and access to a well, really good library. Time is the key, right? I mean, yeah. when, you're, when you're doing it, you don't have time to stop and exactly think. Exactly. And I think that's where um, there's a huge advantage to pulling people out just to kind of ruminate. Exactly. And I think about things from, from a little bit of a distance because it's very hard to do when you're in the middle of everything. No, exactly. There's a great, I mean, there, a lot of this book is fantastic, but there's a great section here that kind of you lay out what you call the not so secret formula <laughs> for terrorists. We already talked about some of these. You said propaganda mm. by deed, talked about attrition, mm. even in some cases provoking overreaction, and even what you were just talking about the idea of building legitimacy, the idea mm. of one side being illegitimate, the other side being legitimate, and the whole idea of the Americans and others and the British mm -hmm. not having legitimacy. I want to ask you about a particular concept you have in here about mm -hmm. kind of the revolutionary anti-hero because yeah. a, a big part of American and allied strategy has been kind of the whole cutting off the head um, mm -hmm. particular drone strikes about leadership I mean the joke for a long time was the, the worst thing in the world to be is the number two guy yeah. at ISIS because of going after the top guy and then Baghdadi gets killed a couple months ago which should have been a huge success and everyone the next day kind of moved on from mm -hmm. it of course the bin laden thing took 10 years but everyone was happy about that but he isn't even the leader anymore mm -hmm. at that point that seems to fly in the face a little bit of kind of this broader idea of kind of the human rights perspective and other things because if you have a charismatic leader i mean again if castro had been killed in 56 the world would have been a very different place forget hitler but if you know if if ho chi minh had got a meeting with Woodrow Wilson in 1917 or 1918, mm -hmm. the world would have been a very different place. I know this is kind of big people mm -hmm. history, which I try to not do, um, but you, you include it in here. So <laughs> I want to ask you about the idea of kind of the mm -hmm. need for this kind of charismatic, revolutionary anti-hero as a leader of these movements. Um, 
I think like most political movements, and you know, at the end of the day, as you said earlier, when we're talking about terrorism, we're talking about a political tactic, we're talking about politics. Um, you know, having a, a symbol, a, f a figurehead, uh, whether it's um, Nigel Farage and the Brexit movement in the UK, or whether it's Osama bin Laden, I don't really necessarily want to make that parallel. But you just did. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. <laughs> but it doesn't really matter who it is, right? I mean, you need to have a face. Um, you know, but it, it makes it easier for people to understand who they're following. It makes them easier to understand the values of the person involved. Um, the concept I write about in the book, and again, it's not my original idea, is this, this idea of martyrology. You know, the actual deliberate construction of um, uh, the phrase that I use in the book is revolutionary prototypes, which is a, a phrase that actually goes back to a guy called uh, Sergei Nechev, who was a, a very early Russian anarchist. He's a contemporary of Bakunin. Um, he wrote something called The Catechism of the Revolutionary, which is one of the first kind of uh, terrorist doctrines or um, manifestos about how-to manuals, if you like. Um, and Nachev himself, he, he, he uses this term revolutionary prototype, and he sets out to become this. And he does this in a, a number of you know, ways, uh, quite entertaining and amusing ways. Um, you know, he's a very good-looking kid. He's, he's a very smart guy. He's involved in, in, in revolutionary circles in St. Petersburg. But to really break out, he needs, he has to become, you know, he needs to become a hero. And so what he does is he basically fakes his own arrest. Um, and what he does is he, he, he throws from a carriage a note wrapped around a stone saying, help, I've been arrested, they're taking me to the St. Peter and Paul Fortress. And he waits until he sees a student on the street, throws the stone at him, the student picks up the note, oh my God, my chef's been arrested. Um, he lays low for a couple of weeks and then reappears, I've escaped. You know, and, and suddenly he's the first guy to escape from this unbelievable symbolism of Tsarist oppression that nobody escapes from. I mean, you can go and visit the, the Peter and Paul Fortress today, and you can go to, I think it's called the Chichesky Bastion, you can actually visit, I've done this. You can go to the Bastion where they used to lock people up, and you can see Vera Figner's cell, and you know, all these famous Russian anarchist uh, and social, socialist revolutionary terrorists were all locked up in this place, and it's, there's no getting out of it. There's right. one door at the bottom. Um, they put felt on the walls so they couldn't communicate. You know, this was, this was hardcore stuff. So escaping it made him a very big deal indeed, even though he didn't actually escape it. You know, he self-invented. Um, and that you see that that sort of myth making you see again and again with terrorist figures, as you do with lots of political figures. Mm -hmm. You know, we did the same thing with George Washington here, right? You know, he cannot tell a lie. I chopped down the cherry right. tree, right? You know, well, I mean, Bin Laden in many cases. Bin Laden, right? I mean, you, you look at what he wore, right. right? Everything he wore, the gun he carried, you know, all this was sending a message. You know, he didn't carry an AK-47; he carried an AK-74. He did that to remind you that he went toe to toe with the Spetsnaz. He actually was on the battlefield with them, and it was a present from, you know, allegedly, and it was a present from his military commander, right? But it was there to tell you that. Uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri still carries it, although I'm pretty damn sure he's never been on a battlefield, um, at least he's not, not going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Spetsnaz. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it's kind of interesting. You know, this has been going around uh, forever, um, but in the terrorist circles, it's pretty common. Michael Collins was one of the very first people to understand the value of using cinema. He did a bond drive. Uh, for, for the Irish Republican movement, you know, made a movie. Um, he, if you look at photographs from the time, he was one of the few people who understood how long it took to expose a negative. So he would stand still. And so there's a lot of pictures where everybody's blurred except for Michael Collins because he <laughs> knows he's got to hold the post. Yeah. Right? Um, Yasser Arafat, you know, the, 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 the famous speech at the United Nations where he's still got his you know, pistol belt on and uh, the way he tied his kafir so it draped down in the shape of, uh, of Palestine. Right? You know, all of this is staging. He wore, you know, a, a soldier's fatigues because he's one of the people. Right. You I know? mean, you see that a lot with the, the final videos of Anwar al-Awlaki and others. Anwar mm -hmm. al-Awlaki, who is the least... You know, he wasn't fighting the Americans anywhere. He, he was living in the United States until right before he right. moved over there. And 
that reinvention of themselves as fighters and you know kind of the the myth of the mm -hmm. the you know jihadist instead of sending other people go die yeah which is all they really do um, they try to reinvent themselves in the way they can. Which is why when you get the little peeks behind the curtain, you know, when, when al-Baghdadi wears the, what was it, the Rolex or the Seamaster or whatever it was on the wrist, I mean, it, it is shocking and it is worth pointing out. You know, when uh, al-Zakawi can't use the, the, the machine gun that he's holding, you know, the, the, and you're this great warrior, you know, it, it, it dents the brand. Um, and those brands are just susceptible to, to negative publicity as they are to right. positive publicity if you can figure out how to do it, right. which isn't always easy. Well, let's, um, let's talk about that because mm. part three of the book is where you kind of lay out the framework, really, what the subtitle of the book is. Mm. We talk about countering terrorism within a human rights framework. And this really, again, this goes against some of the common understanding mm -hmm. of the whole of taking off the gloves and getting mm -hmm. dirty. You know, what Dick Cheney prescribed sure. after 9-11, what Bibi Netanyahu still talks about today. Even the French, who are kind of looked upon as being a little more touchy-feely after the Charlie not Hebdo. Not right, no, right, <laughs> right after the Charlie Hebdo attack, when they yeah. talked about already the British in Northern mm. Ireland. I, wanna, I, I usually don't do this, but there's mm. a great quote you have that you, from Ban Ki-moon, the, um, yeah. the Secretary General of the United Nations. You have this on one of the pages where, uh, and I love the idea, that, uh, 2015 at a summit of countering violent extremism, and he said, Missile, while missiles may kill terrorists, good governance kills terrorism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting kind of distinction there between what we've been kind of on this treadmill of trying to kill our way out of this situation. And even if you don't apply the kind of the maxim that you kill one and you create three, even if it's one for one, mm -hmm. you're still going to be there for decades trying to kill your way out of this problem because mm -hmm. it's just not going to stop anytime soon. The idea of fighting terrorism mm -hmm. versus fighting terrorists seems to be the framework that you're trying to lay out here. You know, and, and, and I'm glad you picked on that quote, although, you know, one of the things I, I tried to do really hard in the book was mostly quote practitioners, mm. um, voices that you wouldn't expect to be saying things that agreed with the point of view and the perspective that I was presenting. You know, I quote General Hayden a lot. Now, Hayden's taken, uh, General Hayden's taken a position on, on, on the use of coercion in, in, in the interview room, but he's a very thoughtful guy, and when he writes about terrorism, you know, this is a man who's, you know, as much scholar as he is intelligence officer. Um, you know, he, he talks a lot about second and third order effects and not being able to, to predict them. And the reality of that is absolutely true. It's really hard to know. Um, you know, the famous Camus quote, you know, you may at the, 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 the expense of one life save 10, but in doing so, you may cost another 100. Um, that, that's the reality of the situation you're in. You're thinking tactically when you use these tactics. You're right. not thinking strategically. Um, nine times out of 10, it's driven by frustration. You know, I, I'm a professional. I'm an investigator by training and background. That's what I've spent my entire career doing. Um, you know, I, I, I spend my life training cops around the world and, and soldiers around the world and intelligence officers around the world. I've done it everywhere. Um, the people who do well in interview rooms are skilled interviewers. Um, the people who do badly in interviews tend to be the people who are abusers. Um, they get frustrated. I mean, it's more complex than that. Let's start off with the assumption that you are actually trying to get information. You know, right. torture a lot of the time is just about intimidation and, and, and payback. But if you are genuinely trying to get information out of somebody, it's not that some people won't speak uh, and some people will speak. I mean, of course, some people who are tortured will tell the truth. But a lot of the studies will tell you and a lot of um, uh, you know, real world historic examples make it very clear that well-motivated people typically don't. Um, and I can give you some examples. There's um, uh, Thomas Malone, who was, uh, I want to say, the IRA commander in Limerick in the uh, Irish War of Independence. 
um, was also known in IRA circles. He was the, the known as Sean Ford. And the Brits caught him. The Royal Irish Constabulary Auxiliaries caught him, um, dragged him in. And they, know that they knew that Sean Ford was the leader of the IRA. They didn't know that Thomas Malone was Sean Ford. Um, they beat him up really badly. I mean, they, they knocked all his teeth out. And when that didn't work, they heated up irons in a fire, um, a pincer in a, in, a, in a fire, and started ripping chunks of flesh out of his back. And there's a great quote in his memoirs. He said, that was it. They weren't playing the game. Right. At that point, I was never going to cooperate. They didn't know. And he got out. He stuck to his cover story, which ironically was his real identity, <laughs> um, and got out. Um, we could talk about Kalashek Mohammed being waterboarded 188 times. I mean, he didn't talk. Um, and then the problem when you get um, fake information, uh, Sheikh Al Libby, you know, really important fake information. And by the way, you know, if you listen to Ali Sufan, he was already cooperating and providing useful information before they decided to turn him over to the Egyptians. Right. Um, so, and then the information he did provide ended up being part of the argument for going for war in Iraq, and it wasn't true which is this meeting between um, uh, Saddam and some nuclear scientists. So, you know, th this is the problem. It's not that it doesn't ever work. It's that it doesn't work very well. The information that you get from a rapport-built interview, when you've established a relationship with somebody and you've slowly teased out information, and that's the real thing. Then there's another issue, and when I'm, when I'm training, I always say this, it's the difference between open and closed questions. Right? When you're interviewing somebody in a, in a rapport-building circumstance, you're asking open questions, it's free accounting, you're letting them explain. You can guide the conversation a little bit, but typically you let them talk once you get them talking. Um, you can't do that in a coercive interrogation. Right, It's a directed, closed-question scenario. You, know, you have the information you had when you walked into the room, and you're going to drive forward with that information. You're not open. You don't have the opportunity. He's not going to get smacked in the face four times and say, why do you keep asking me about Peter? You should be asking me about Paul. Right? That's, right. Not, that's not what's going to happen. He's either going to tell you something about Peter eventually, whether he knows Peter or not, or he's going to tell you nothing. And, and that's the problem. It's just not smart practice. Um, you know, as I say in the book, it's not that you can't do a lot of things you want to do within a human rights framework. Right? There's a human rights framework within which you can use force. And you can use deadly force. There's a human rights framework in which you can interview terrorists. There's a human rights framework in which you can detain terrorists. There's a human rights framework within which you can engage communities. Right? All of these things, you know, and there's certainly a human rights framework where you can bug, eavesdrop, and run right. human sources. Right? I mean, all of these things are allowed and indeed envisaged and encouraged in a human rights framework because every government has an obligation to protect the human rights of their citizens. You know, Bibi Netanyahu's thing is that we, human rights get in the way of protecting our citizens. Well, no, actually, human rights is what protects the citizens. And when you chip away at that, you chip away at it not just for the terrorists, you chip away at it for everybody. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.
Well, you talk, in the, there yeah. have been some governments that have given lip service mm-hmm. to trying to fight terrorism this way. The British themselves with mm-hmm. this contest program. Mm-hmm. I know when President Obama came to mm-hmm. office, he talked a lot mm-hmm. about fighting terrorism a different way. But they always seem to panic when something happens mm-hmm. and kind of go back to the what they would consider the tried and true methods, but then when it keeps failing, mm-hmm. is a killer way out of things. I mean, mm-hmm. the Obama administration talked about closing Guantanamo. They talked about you know more freedom of press. And then, of course, they lock up more whistleblowers than any other administration in history. And they use more drone strikes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and of course, um, Guantanamo is still alive and kicking. Now, that's mm-hmm. not necessarily Obama's fault, but there's a lot of lip service given to mm-hmm. changing things. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, when I was at Amnesty, I was one of the, the monitors that went down to Guantanamo. And I went to the first meeting. I, I joined Amnesty just after Obama's election. Um, and I went to the first meeting on, on this issue about closing Guantanamo that the Pentagon held with um, the civil society organizations. And I said to them, as you know, there's basically three categories of prisoners. You had the people there who were cleared for release but hadn't been released. You had the people who they were pretty confident they could prosecute in a military tribunal. And they had about 30 people that they really weren't going to release because they were absolutely 100% sure in their own minds, not in the court of law, but in their own minds that they were terrorists, um, but they couldn't prosecute. And so the only thing that mattered in closing Guantanamo was what you were going to do with those 30 people. Right. right? It didn't really matter what you were going to do with the, the people you were going to try, and it didn't matter what the, the people you were going to move out because you knew they were clear for release. All of that would work itself out eventually. The issue was what were you going to do about the 30? And in that first meeting, I asked the, the, the DASTI, um, what they had, the, the, the um, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Detainee Affairs, what, 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 he were, what they were going to do, and they didn't have an answer. And I went back from the meeting, I said, they're not going to close Guantanamo. Yeah. Um, it was as simple as that. Um, because if you can't deal with the hard questions, you're, you're not going to solve the problem, because it's the easy stuff, you nibble away at that really quickly, and then it's only hard questions after that. But you're absolutely right. I mean, what you're, you're hinting at, and I think it is fundamental, is that democracies have a really hard time with terrorism. And they have a really hard time with terrorism because of public opinion. Right. Uh, because the public wants you to be tough. And Tony Blair had this great have it both ways phrase, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Right? But you're kind of trapped in that world. You have to look tough. They, they, it, 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 it's again, not my phrase, but um, it, it's security theater. Um, and the, the example I use in the book, and it's my favorite example, is every time there's a serious terrorism threat in the UK, the British government will park a warrior armored personnel carrier outside Heathrow with its you know, Raiden cannon on the top of it. Now, if that thing fires, it's going to do considerably more damage to the people in Heathrow Airport than anything the terrorists arrive with. Right. Right? So it's not there to fight. It's there to reassure. It's there to you know, be a theatrical prop to all well, the I mean, that's true. No, I mean, mm. even putting a, a, a soldier with an M4 right. in an airport. With full metal jacket and ammunition, she's right, going to spin through three th- people. Yeah, yeah. Thirty-one hundred yeah. feet per second. You may, you can kill your bad guy, but you're going to get the three baby people behind, behind everything and everything everybody else. Um, I, I used to walk past the um, the federal court in New York, and the, the U.S. Marshals are, are always there on the front steps with their shotguns. And there's a children's playground opposite, and you just think, you know, if anybody tries to attack the front of this building, you're going to kill twenty kids. Right. You know, I mean, it's nuts, or at least blind a few. I don't know whether they're using. You know, solid shot or whether they're using buckshot in there, but it's one way or another, it's not going to be great to be in that playground. You know, I mean, there's a lot of this uh, sort of prophylactic work that we do that, that serves no real purpose but reassures the public, and that's the problem you have. Well, a lot of it, yeah, closing the barn door and the horses are already miles and miles away, the yeah, idea yeah. of taking off our shoes and, you yeah. know, the liquid and everything, all that, all that is yeah. from, you know, now more than a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And didn't work. 
Well, it number, not, not only did it not work, but the idea is you really think terrorists are dumb enough to try something again that didn't work the first time. Sure. So all of a sudden we're fixing things that we should have fixed back in the 90s if we really wanted to stop this from happening. Um, but we're not looking. I mean, there are people looking ahead, obviously. Mm-hmm. But it's probably not the Department of Homeland Security. It's probably not the TSA. It's it's not, you know, we're, we're still doing things that would have protected us perhaps from something 15 years ago, but may mm-hmm. not today. I mean, and, the, the cliche is the bomber will always get through, and it will. You know, I mean, the, the, the person, the determined attacker will get through. You can't protect Stanley everything. Stanley Baldwin, mm-hmm. who said that, was wrong all the way up until now, right? You know, the idea is, he was talking about oh, that no, in World London War II. took a few hits. <laughs> oh, yeah, but, you know, but the idea of strategic bombing yeah. enthusiasts in World War II, yeah. that makes a whole lot more sense now, the yeah. idea of looking at it that way. Well, interestingly yeah. enough, there's, um, I want to say his name is uh, Yakov Eliav, or Eliav Yakov. He's a Lehi gunman from the... Uh, the 30s, and I, I want to say Menesh and Begin said something very similar, that the, you know, the determined man will get through yeah. any security screen. Um, you know, and, and, and we talk about threat cascade in the business, right? You know, I mean, you, you can't eliminate threat, you can move it. You know, so you can harden certain targets, but you know, if you harden sports stadiums, then the bus terminal gets targeted. You harden the bus terminal, it's trains. You harden trains, it's schools, right? I mean, the, you know, you cannot protect everybody all the time. It's, you know, you, you assume a certain degree of risk, as we do in many areas of our life. Um, you know, we, we all eat hamburgers, and, you know, one in four of us will die from heart disease, but we don't, we don't try and put McDonald's out of business. Um, well, that's all the things you're talking about. It, it goes back to his, to Ban Ki-moon's quote. The, mm-hmm. quote is, the idea is, all that is fighting terrorists mm-hmm. and trying to prevent terrorists from doing things. It's not fighting the root causes of terrorism. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that's what you're prescribing in this book, the idea of mm-hmm. things like community engagement and early intervention. It sounds very touchy-feely, but mm-hmm. that's how you prevent people from becoming terrorists mm-hmm. in the first place. And, and something I actually found really interesting in this was the idea that you go pretty hard after hate speech mm-hmm. and after extremist organization. Now, of course, that is a debate mm-hmm. now in the United States. It's a debate in Europe mm-hmm. about where is that line between mm-hmm. the First Amendment here in the sure. United States or international law. You know, where what can you ban? What can mm-hmm. you not ban? And everyone and this is this is where mm-hmm. laws haven't been updated. Mm-hmm. So I mean, everyone knows the whole yelling fire in a crowded movie theater, but that that's that's a, that's from decades and decades ago. Where do you draw the line between, like, pro-Nazi speech and saying that's mm-hmm. that's illegal, and with the First Amendment? So the First Amendment is really interesting, right? Because you, you hit the nail on the head. It's old, right? It's really old. Um, modern human rights law is you know, considerably more recent, right? If you if you're looking at the the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you're talking 1948, the ICCPR, you know, you're you're moving into the 60s. Um, if you look at human rights law, hate speech isn't protected. Um, the First Amendment protects it, but in the international standard does not. So I, I have no problem with going after hate speech at all, you know, in my personal opinion. Again, I'm, I'm fairly intolerant about that sort of thing. Um, you look at what right-wing extremism and the growth of it in the United States and the amount of violence that's now associated with it, we're facing a serious, serious problem. Um, you know, and I don't have a crystal ball and, and I don't want to predict anything, but um, we are seeing an escalation of violence. It's likely to get worse before it gets better. Now, I don't know how things are going to play out at the next election or in the election after that or the election after that, but there is a rift in this country. And on the fringes of that rift, probably on both sides, but certainly at the moment more on the right than on the left, you have violent people with access to firearms, military training, um, and they're pretty highly motivated. Right. And it's probably only a matter of time before we see... I mean, we're already seeing the kind of terrorist incidents that pre-9-11 would have set alarm bells ringing. 
but our tolerance for terrorism has gone up a little bit right. since then. The tolerance for a lot of things has gone. I mean, right. uh, you know, violence in, in broader sense has gone up a lot. And I, th- I want to actually ask you about that as well mm-hmm. in, in a different way, is that you're, you're identifying a lot of things that it seems like there needs to be public conversation mm-hmm. about a lot of these things. Um, there, there's conversation in the bubble here in Washington, D.C. There's conversation within the political scientists crowd, mm-hmm. people who st- look at terrorism, people who look at foreign policy about things like hate speech and extremism, about mm-hmm. things like what is, a, what is a combatant versus what a civilian and the idea of kind of direct participation. That popped up every so often, like when Anwar Awlaki mm-hmm. was killed, right? Because his son was killed as well. Mm-hmm. His son, which he wasn't a terrorist, he mm-hmm. was just a dude. Now, he probably would have became one down the road. He was in Yemen being radicalized at the time, but there was no evidence. Still a kid. Still a kid. Yeah. And no evidence that there was any direct participation. And a second incident as well. So right. it's a second drone strike, not the first one. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, and of course, Alaki himself, the idea of being an American citizen, mm-hmm. right? He didn't go to trial and due process. Now, Eric Holder said he decided he got his own due process mm-hmm. by whatever the hell Eric Holder decided was due mm-hmm. process. Those are not conversations that we're having as a public it's happening within the policy community. It's happening within the, the expert community. But these are major decisions. I mean, what we're talking about, what you're talking about, is applying an international law framework to the mm-hmm. First Amendment in the United States. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. Well, and, and I think the United States is not very interested in doing that, right? Um, but that, which but, it makes quite clear. But, but how, uh, do you, how do you even start that conversation without having that? Con- I mean, how, the American public should be having that conversation. It's really difficult. And yeah. if you look in the United Kingdom, there's a lot of hostility towards the concept of human rights now in the UK. And it's part of the whole Brexit melange. It was the, uh, the European Court of Human Rights knocking back the British government on several terrorism-related cases. Um, people they wanted to detain but didn't have the evidence to prosecute. So we had immigration detention and then we had uh, control orders. These were contested and people felt that you know, Brussels, of course they don't understand how the European Court of Human Rights works, it's Strasbourg, not Brussels. It's not actually part of the European Union. But you know, people would conflate all of this and think, well, foreigners are telling us how to run our laws, this is terrible. Um, but again, you know, I, I think what you can have a debate with in American society, I mean, uh, there's nothing in the First Amendment that is infringing human rights. Right, the, fir- the, first of the, uh, the First Amendment is a more extreme version, if you like, of human rights, um, of, of where international human rights law stands. So, I mean, you could have a debate in the United States about changing um, the First Amendment, I guess, um, but it doesn't really have to be a human rights conversation. And you could make quite a lot of changes to it before it became a human rights, before you'd be buff- butting up against where international law would be saying, look, this is where you have to be careful, um, certainly around the issue of hate speech. Um, so you know it, it, it's 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 a really interesting conversation. I mean, to go back to Amal Alaki, which is a which is a a great test case. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this happened while I was at Amnesty, and I, I spent a lot of time arguing with with colleagues at Amnesty about this, because at the end of the day, a state does. I mean, there, there's a international law framework, there's a human rights framework um, that could apply to what happened with Amal Alaki. Every state has an inherent right to self-defense. Um, what you had here was an exercise of preemptive self-defense. Now, that's a really tricky and ill-defined area of, of international law. Typically, you talk about imminence. Again, I, I, went, I, I don't think I can talk about this. Um, a phrase that was used and bandied around at the time um, by the Obama administration was, we've changed the concept of imminence. We're now using a concept of elongated imminence. Yes. A fantastic phrase. Um, chilling. And, and the person who used this phrase was, was a human rights guy. 
um, but a lawyer working for, for the, uh, the Obama administration, you know, who was trying to do what his bosses had asked and find a way to, to, to reach out and touch Anwar al-Awlaki. Awlaki was in contact with the Fort Hood shooter. He was in right. contact with the guy who tried to bomb out. This guy represented a serious threat. I mean, to my mind, the issue then just becomes how do you deal with it? No state can really be expected to sit on its hands while somebody is plotting to murder its citizens. Um, you know, it has an obligation first to work with the state authorities in the country where that person resides. Well, that's Yemen, and they can't help. Right. right? Then you can look at, well, what could we do that's non-lethal? Well, not a whole hell of a lot. You know, trying to land a, a special forces team on the ground in a place like Yemen is incredibly difficult. And again, do you really want to be putting all those lives at risk? Um, ah, well, we have this, this drone. That can, which is just a weapons platform. It's no different than shooting him, right? Right. It's just a weapons platform. Can we use force? That's the question. To stop this man from killing our citizens, and it comes down then to sort of arguments about, you know, how soon was the next attack? Was another attack in preparation? Um, what is imminence? Um, typically, imminence in international law has been measured in hours, um, but you know the world is changing. The law is never absolute. Uh, there are one or two. Um, preemptory norms of international law, but most is custom, and custom changes or evolves and becomes more nuanced. Um, most of law, whether it's domestic or international, is an argument. People meet at a court, whether it's the, the Hague or, or, or wherever, and they argue about an interpretation of where the line is. Um, so this is something that there was a debate that could have been had about that. Um, I never felt the fact that he was a US citizen, frankly, from an international perspective, was irrelevant. You know, if, if he's a combatant on the other side of a conflict and you say the conflict exists, now that's a complicated debate as well. Right. Um, but if you were to accept that there was a conflict um, and the United, uh, the United States was part of that conflict and he was on the other side, it doesn't matter that he's a United States citizen. It's an enemy combatant. Um, so again, I mean, this is a really difficult issue to unpack because it was Yemen, because the whole concept of an international conflict against a non-state actor is massively contentious. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a legally a complicated issue, but the issue of whether or not a state should sit on its hands when somebody is plotting to kill its citizens is quite straightforward. Right. They have a right to defend their citizens. Just like a cop, if you see somebody you know, assembling a rifle um, you know, at the, the, the top of a street um, and starts to raise it to his shoulder, might decide, okay, this guy's about to shoot somebody and engage them. Um, you know, there are, if you're law enforcement, a series, again, of international standards. You're supposed to yell a challenge and ideally shot, fire a warning shot, which you know, is a, contentious for a lot of cops. But, but a, a challenge is fundamental. You know, in the, Brit the British system, you have to shout. I mean, it's, it's amusing to Americans, but you have to shout, armed police. You, know, you have to identify yourself as an armed officer before you fire. And it's very contentious if they fire. Now, there are extingent circumstances where you might not have time. And the, the, the Gibraltar... Uh, incident, uh, Operation Gladius is one of those occasions where that became a big issue. Did the SAS issue a challenge before they shot the, the IRA operatives who were in the process of planning an attack um, to bomb a, I think it was the Royal Anglian Regiment's band um, outside the governor's residence. So, I mean, you know, it, 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 these are very, very complex and complicated issues. But the reality is international law does allow and explain how you use force, how you detain people, how you interview people, how you bug people, how you spy right. on them, all of that. And it doesn't say you can't do it. I mean, quite the reverse. There's a quote in the book from the, the High Commissioner for Human Rights saying the states have an obligation to stop terrorists from killing their citizens and to use the tools in their toolbox to do it. They just have to do it lawfully. 
which again is what we ask them to do when they go after bank robbers and when they go after you know, drug dealers and drug cartels. Well, possibly not now in Mexico, we'll have to see. Um, but you know, typically for law enforcement, that's what they do. They operate within the law. It's what the military does on military operations, typically right. operate within the law, uh, different law. Um, so again, it, this, this shouldn't be that radical a concept. Um, I'm not suggesting you have to go out and hug a terrorist. I'm just saying you have to use lawful methods to kill them. Well, let's talk about if, the if big, that's necessary. Right. The big picture at the end uh, um, is mm. you actually lead off the whole book with a quote. Well, there's two, but mm. this is from Marianne Pearl. Mm. And I think it's very important. And I'll, I'll, it's not long, so I'll read the whole thing. Because the end of it is really the matter that kind of juxta the whole thing is terrorism is a psychological weapon, even though it uses physical means. It stops you from claiming the world is your own. It stops you from relating to other people. It creates fear and hatred. The only way to fight terrorists as a citizen is deny them these emo those emotions. That is the only thing terrorists don't expect. Everything else they expect, retaliation, bombing, attacks, all of that exactly what they want. Deny them fear and they lose. And that, that, you know, that's fundamental to this entire book. My question is, well, they seem to be winning then because we are so much more afraid of terrorism than we should be. And that's not just me saying this. You mentioned in the book that fireworks, cows, and elevators kill more Americans mm -hmm. than terrorists do. Peter Bergen's last book, I think you even mentioned in that, we've, we've had Peter mm -hmm. Bergen on several times, including his book about domestic terrorism, where refrigerators falling on people have killed more mm -hmm. people than, than terrorism does. Yet we spend billions and billions of dollars, you know, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which were both technically counterterrorism operations cost in the trillions at mm -hmm. this point. And it doesn't seem like there's an easy fix because as you mentioned, and you're not the first one to say this, but I think we're going to be hearing more and more about the security industrial complex. You know, Eisenhower warned about the military industrial complex, but now you, I mean, I live in Crystal City mm -hmm. where I'm literally surrounded by Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Boeing and everybody else in these wonderful buildings that cost billions of dollars because they're getting that money mm -hmm. from the government. It's not Boeing's not making money from building B-52s anymore. They're they're sending out yeah. contractors and they're doing systems to fight terrorism. And that seems to me like even if everyone buys into this idea, mm -hmm. there's a lot of tough sledding ahead because of the last 20 years and post 9/11 and what that has turned into. Mm -hmm. Well, look, first I should say I'm part of that complex. Yeah. That's how I earn my yeah. money too. Um, and Again, there's nothing wrong with that to a point if you're doing it right. So let me let me unpack a couple of things. You, you raised three or four really interesting things. First thing I wanted to say is I'm really glad you used the Marion Pearl quote. I used to finish all of my courses with that. That'd be the last thing I'd say to my students at the end of every course. I, I think you know, for a woman who'd lost her husband as horribly as she did, and my wife had actually been interviewed by Daniel Pearl well, in, in Kosovo a little bit. Just before. if you don't know who that is, that yeah, then that's Daniel Pearl's wife, you know, who had been beheaded. Um, um, just yeah, go, sorry. Yeah, yeah, the Wall Street Journal, New York right. Times, Wall Street Journal. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I assume the audience knew, but that's good to kind of make sure they understand who we're talking about here. As someone who should be very, very bitter, yeah, about this and kind of was going the opposite direction. Yeah, so I mean, it, it's possible for people to you know to, to to suffer deep personal loss and still maintain a sense of perspective. I mean, that's what makes that such a courageous quote to my mind. Um, so I'm really glad that you highlighted that. The the next question, I guess, is um, oh now I've I've somewhat lost my thread. Well, I mean, a lot of it is we seem to be losing. Oh, losing. Because yeah. it's about if, if, if beating terrorists is about not being afraid of terrorists, then we are getting our ass kicked. So, so you said before that they were winning. Yeah. And um, my comeback to that was going to be they're not winning, we're losing. Okay. Um, because I don't think they're winning. 
I really don't. I mean, a, a lot of terrorism is a hamster on a wheel. Um, you know, you can run around in circles, but you know, you're not winning until you build something. Um, you know, and you know, Islamic State tried to build something. It lasted what a couple of years, um, and they've left nothing behind. So that's that's not winning, um, and they've not really ended up converting. I mean, there are I forget how many 1.6 billion Muslims on the planet. You know, I mean, the, the Islamic State is not appealing to 1.6 billion people. Not even a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of that. So I don't think they're winning. Um, I think we are losing though, and I think we're losing because of what we're doing to ourselves. Um, you know, I'm not, obviously every human death is a tragedy, and, and you know, if we lose 10 people to terrorism for the families that are impacted by that, it, it's overwhelming, it's, it's, it's horrendous. Um, but from the strategic level, even something like September 11th is not a strategic shock in terms of whether the United States is, certainly not an existential threat. Um, you know, much as that term has been bandied around, um, if you're Israel, I think you can have a conversation about terrorism posing an existential threat in its unique circumstances. For most other countries, particularly when the terrorism's as expeditionary um, as perhaps our military operations are, you know, it's impossible, frankly, to env envisage any scenario where the United States is a Muslim country because right. of the activities of Islamic State or, or Al-Qaeda. So it's not an existential threat. It's a tactical threat at best. Um, it only becomes a, strate a strategic threat if we make mistakes. If we start doing things that alienate our allies, you know, break alliances, alienate populations that had somewhat been sympathetic, spend our soft power, dismantle our soft power, but if the which goal, we seem uh, to be doing at the but moment. But let me, let, me, mm. let me interrupt because I think that yeah. it, I usually I try not to, but in this case, <laughs> and, and the listeners are laughing because I interrupt all the time. But mm. let me interrupt in that case because if the goal of al-Qaeda on 9-11 wasn't to make the United States a Muslim country, mm -hmm. It was to get us going after ourselves. It's to get us to create things like the Patriot Act. It's to destroy our economy and get us in stupid wars to mm -hmm. entrench our military capabilities. It's hard to say they didn't win. Well, I, I think, they, I think they, their strategic goal was to get us out of the Middle East. Yeah. Um, and we're still there. And they're not. So I, you know, I, don't, I don't think they really cared about the United States that much or what happened in the United States. You know, they were interested in doing the same thing to the United States that they, had, they perceived they had done to the Soviet Union is a bit more complicated than that so it's, it's easy to spin that as the soviet union being defeated by the majority and there's a lot more going on in the collapse of the soviet union than that um but that was the narrative that they had and they wanted to do the same thing to the united states and that's explicit from you know a host of of, of terrorist uh, documents that have been recovered since 9 11. um but you know there, there, there was never an al-qaeda plan for the occupation of the united states right i mean that was never right. envisaged they wanted to do a couple of things they wanted to to undermine the United States support for the, you know, the, the, the undermine the far enemy's ability to support the near enemy, which was you know, secular Arab governments in the Middle East and North Africa. They wanted to polarize Islam, uh, Muslim society. They wanted, you know, the, 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 uh, if you read Dabiq, you know, that famous phrase from Dabiq, you know, eliminate the gray zone, okay, that's ISIS, but the, the concept you can find almost exactly the, the, the administration of savagery is the concept that, that um, Al-Qaeda uh, embraced. Um, you saw sort of uh, fully play out with al-Zakawi. Um, you know, this idea that if you can force people to choose a side, you know, George Bush is famous, you're either with right. us or with the terrorists. I mean, that's, that's what they wanted. They want polarization. They don't want people in the middle. They don't want, what was the, the fantastic phrase from the New York Daily News, the axis of weasel for the French and the Germans. Right, yes. they don't want anybody in the middle, right? I mean, the French and the Germans were right about Iraq. That's the reality of it. Um, certainly in terms of, as you said, I mean, the amount of money we've spent, we would all have free health care. 
Right. Um, which, okay, I mean, the, the people may not enthusiastically in some parts necessarily embrace that as a concept, but, you know, I mean, that's a lot of money to spend to be where we are now. Um, yeah, and there are some subsidiary benefits from that, the security industrial complex, uh, innovation, technology advances, all of that stuff. It becomes very hard to work out ultimately where the ledger rests after any event. Um, I read a really interesting thing just recently about the Easter uprising in 1916 in Dublin, how it led to a mini bo uh, building boom in Dublin during the war when there was recession. Um, and so initially, actually, there was quite a lot of enthusiasm you know, for, for the work that had been generated by this. You know, it's really hard to know those second and third order effects and right. how things will play out over time. It, it's really hard. What you can say for sure is that if you start changing your society in a way where you diminish protections for existing freedoms, you're probably going to be the poorer for it. Yeah. Um, because at some day, that war will end. And it's going to be very, very hard to roll back or recover those protections because they'll, you'll have created a new norm. And norms are hard to change. Well, that's just what we were talking about. The idea is our, our, our ability to accept things that we never would have beforehand. Yeah. Is, it, the, the line has shifted so dramatically mm -hmm. since 9-11. Um, and, you know, it, and it's, you see that in different segments of society now, too, with everything from gun violence. I'm not going to go preachy on that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the, from the Columbine back in the 90s, which was... Mm -hmm like game changing for a lot of people to having a columbine every couple couple columbines a year mm -hmm. and now it's like oh, well no I, yeah and you said with terrorist attacks as well i mean one of the crazy things i mean i, I just spent three and a half years in iraq um and people was like i'm gonna when i got there isis was 12 miles away from baghdad you know they were they're not that far from from the airport at least um and people were horrified that i'd taken the job there and i was just yeah in my three years, the two most dangerous experiences I had was I was in Brussels just before the, uh, literally checked out of the, um, uh, the same Turkish Airlines desk that was hit by the, the bombing in Brussels airport the day before. Um, and I passed through Istanbul just before the bombing at Istanbul yeah. airport. I mean, it wasn't in, it, the most dangerous things that happened, they didn't happen in Iraq. Um, you know, the, this, this, this world is a more dangerous place in some respects. Um, but I also grew up in the 80s with, uh, you know, the threat of thermonuclear war. So, right. you know, I mean, these things are relative. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's really interesting. And you see generational differences between professionals as well. You know, I mean, I'm a, of a generation now, an aging generation of people who came through in the 90s. You know, I left the security service because, and you're going to laugh at this, it tells you how good an intelligence officer I am. Um, you know, the Cold War was over and terrorism was, when we had the peace process in Northern Ireland, they just didn't look like there was anything left for the security service to do. I got out in 97. Um, you know, in 1998, you had the two embassy bombings, and right. that's when I went and joined the, the War Crimes Tribunal because I wanted to go back into service because it looked like there was still something to do. And I actually spent my four years in Bosnia working on crimes committed by the Mujahideen that fought on the Bosnian government side. And, of course, a lot of those people went on to become you know, members of Al-Qaeda right. or the affiliates around Al-Qaeda. So then I'd had a, quite an interesting background in our, uh, Islamic extremism from the Bosnian context, and that read over to, to sort of doing work now, sort of post 9-11 on, on, on Islamic extremist terrorism. Right. So l let me finish this off by giving, giving a shout out to this book. And, and mm -hmm. I think that people, a lot of times when, I have, when we have somebody on SpyCast, will immediately like go on Amazon and look at the book. And your first reaction, I'm telling you this listener, <laughs> is going to be to start laughing and saying there's not a chance in hell I'm getting a book that is the size of the Bible. Um, maybe a little bigger. Uh, but this is th there's a reason for this. We talked about this beforehand. Is like This is the first time all this comes together in one place. 
And in many respects, there are a lot of good books in there about terrorism, about what the causes of it and some possible solutions to it. This is about as all-encompassing as it gets. And I think that's really what you set out to do, uh, is put it all in one place. And, and really, it's part of a series. Um, and um, But for the most part, uh, I'm not sure there is a single book that is out there that does everything this one does. So I, I got to give you kudos for that. <laughs> um, I like everyone else just again started laughing when i saw this i'm like oh great it's 12,000 pages long and you had emailed me at the funny story is you'd email me like how oh, have you read it yet and i'm like dude it's 60,000 pages long you have to give me a couple minutes to do this um and i thought i was gonna skim and i'll be honest i thought i was gonna kind of skim my way through just to get enough information to ask this question but not only is it impossible to skim because you miss stuff that you really need to know but it's just you don't want to because, again, it's really kind of the one place where you're going to get all this information. So um, lucky for you didn't have my editor who said you can only have a 300-page <laughs> book because I think that this this really does uh, give – if there's one – if you're going to buy one book that's going to do everything, This is I think this is it. So I really appreciate, Tom, you taking the time. And the book is Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, Why Respect for Human Rights is the Key to Defeating Terrorism. The author is Tom Parker. Thank you so much, Tom, for spending time with us today. Thanks, Vince. It's been an absolute pleasure. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.